This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Wiradjuri land, and this is The Full Story. When someone under 50 gets cancer, doctors call it an early-onset case. It's a disease not often associated with the young. But globally, over the past 20 years, certain cancers have increased in younger people to such an extent that some researchers have called it an emerging global epidemic. It's still rare, but rising, and there's still so much we don't know. Today, why more Australians under 50 are getting cancer. It's Monday, the 7th of August. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I started all of a sudden feeling a terrible pain in my stomach on the right side. Started vomiting kind of uncontrollably. Joe Tovey is Deputy News Editor for Guardian Australia. The first time I had really acute symptoms was a night during the lockdown of 2021. And after a few hours of just being in sort of incredible agony, really, went to the local public hospital thinking something's really wrong with me. And I only spent a few hours there because I got a sort of few kind of questions about my period and what I'd eaten that night and was sent out early the next morning, having been given some sort of Panadol and told that I probably had food poisoning. At one point, I was actually told that the most likely diagnosis was appendicitis and that I should have surgery, which they weren't sure they would need to do an appendectomy, but they thought they would sort of have a look is how they were described and possibly remove my appendix if that was what was to happen. I was prepped for surgery, fasted, you know, waiting in my little booties, hospital gown and hairnet. And I got a call that day saying that the surgeon had uh, just been declared a close contact of a COVID case. The new surgeon who I was assigned that day reviewed the same scans and said, actually, I don't think this is appendicitis and and cancelled the surgery. I had to go back to the hospital at least two more times with really acute symptoms before the right kind of diagnostic testing was done, which for me was a colonoscopy. And they discovered that I had bowel cancer. All that took place over about a three-week period, which is not a sort of clinically significant delay to get a diagnosis, but it was a really difficult, frustrating 
process and one I think that sort of speaks to what we assume and what doctors still assume about who gets bowel cancer, who gets these types of gastrointestinal cancers. I didn't seem to fit a profile that they had in their head of somebody who was at risk. I was sort of mid-30s, I was really fit, I eat really well, you know, I barely eat meat, I'd been a vegetarian for most of my life, pretty moderate drinker. And there were so many other sort of explanations that were explored before they discovered the tumour. And that seems fairly representative of what a lot of people, young people who are diagnosed with bowel cancer go through, that every other possibility is explored before the ultimate one. Jo, you've written about how you had to be really persistent to be Mm. heard. Can you tell us, like, what you had to do and how it felt at the time? I don't think the doctors behaved in a way that was sort of negligent or anything. I'm not sort of alleging anything like that. But there was a degree of dismissiveness and the constantly being discharged from hospital without an answer was obviously an incredibly frustrating process to go through. I can't help but think that had I been less confident, less assertive, you know, I'm somebody who asks questions for a living, who wasn't afraid to just keep going back to doctors and saying this isn't good enough, something is wrong and you need to keep looking. If I didn't have that confidence, if I didn't have those English language skills, because it is so frustrating to be turned away and not be given answers and you shouldn't really have to rely on, you know, being a sort of confident, assertive person to get a diagnosis to a life-threatening disease. So you finally did get the diagnosis. What did you learn when they told you? So I learned that I had stage three bowel cancer. The type that I had was called a cecal carcinoma. Your cecum is like a part of sort of a little pouch that exists on the large intestine, close to where the large and small intestine meet. It's right near your appendix, which is partly why I think there was a mistaken earlier diagnosis of appendicitis. It had started spreading to my lymph nodes, which is why it was stage three, because it is starting to spread around the body but it hadn't spread to my other major organs like my liver, which is what's characteristic of a stage four cancer. So in that sense, it was fairly advanced and um, risky, but it wasn't in the most serious stage that a cancer can be. What was the first thing you did when you found out? So my partner, Mick, was there with me and we, we asked a few questions. The doctor gave, you know, answered them as best he could. He was really lovely and, and then left the room. We had a bit of a cry and then I needed to tell my family. And again, I couldn't see my family face to face throughout any of this experience. So we had to kind of do that over the phone. Then Mick's visitor exemption was up and I was sort of left having a bit of a Google about what had happened, which I really don't recommend. Google is not your friend when you're sick. (laughs) So I stopped doing that pretty quickly and I kind of had just had to sit with it. I remember getting the next morning, waking up to my CoStar, which is a sort of daily horoscope app beloved by millennials or was for a short period. And my horoscope that morning was a proud heart brings misfortune, which I just thought absolutely not and deleted the whole app. I didn't know it at the time, but I now realise I'm part of a growing trend of people like me, people who are under 50 but are getting bowel cancer at increasing rates. Donna, Jo mentioned that she's realised she's part of a growing number of millennials getting cancer. Is this a phenomenon we need to know about? So what 
epidemiologists have noticed globally is that rates of certain cancers have drastically increased in younger people. Donna Liu is a science writer for Guardian Australia. Generally speaking, people under 50. And one review looked at the rates of 14 cancer types and it found that the rates of these cancers in younger people have increased significantly in Australia, but also other countries like New Zealand, the US, England, Canada and South Korea. And what this particular study found was that those in younger birth cohorts had a higher cancer risk than those of earlier generations. Donna, what about in Australia specifically? So if we look at Australia specifically, what we know is that the growth in cancer rates has been appreciably greater than population growth. And that's what a 2021 Australian Institute of Health and Welfare report noted. And in the last two decades, the incidence of bowel cancer, for example, in 20 to 39-year-olds has more than doubled. So it went from 4.4 cases per 100,000 people to 10.3 cases. And over that same period, Mm. thyroid cancer rates have jumped as well from 6.5 to 10.9 cases per 100,000. Also in that 20 to 39-year-old age bracket? Yes. Okay, so that's thyroid and bowel cancer. Is there similar findings in other types of cancer? Well, last year there was a study conducted in South Australia based on their registry data, and it found that the rates of gastrointestinal adenocarcinomas, so these are cancers which develop in glands that line the esophagus, stomach, pancreas, colon and rectum, they found that these rates increased significantly for those under 50 between 1990 and 2017. But for people older than 50, the rates have been dropping since 2000. And do they know why this is happening? So better screening may have contributed to uh, the rise in rates to a certain extent, but researchers say that there does seem to be a genuine rise of some of these early onset cancers. And there are multiple risk factors, but researchers still don't really have a definitive answer yet. Next, what young people need to know about cancer risk. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Donna, before the break, you mentioned that there are multiple risk factors that researchers are looking at when it comes to millennial cancer risk. What are those risk factors? Epidemiologists believe that the rise in early onset cancer is linked to changing diets, lifestyles and other environmental exposures over the last several decades. 
The Western diet, for example, has really gone global in the last 50 years. And the Western diet is one that is typically higher in red and processed meat, saturated fat, sugar and processed food. Hmm. Globally, we're also getting bigger. So obesity rates have nearly tripled since 1975, according to the World Health Organization. And observational studies, these are studies that establish a correlation rather than a causation, but observational studies have linked obesity to cancers like colorectal, thyroid, pancreatic and ovarian cancer. Right. So our diet could be a factor or playing a role in this. I would say so. Our diet, our level of physical activity and our body constitution can also affect the microbiome. And this is the community of microbes that live in or on our bodies, so things like bacteria and viruses. And the microbiome plays this really key role in digestion. It regulates our immune systems. Um, it plays a role in inflammation. And what we know is that um, antimicrobial use, for example, has increased in the last two decades. For example, we might have bacteria that's causing tonsillitis and we're trying to treat an infection. But the inadvertent side effect of that is that when you take those antibiotics, they're also killing off other bacteria in the body that aren't necessarily causing disease, for example, in your gut. And I guess what's quite striking is that of that review that looked at those 14 cancers, eight of those cancers that had an increase in younger people were related to the gastrointestinal system. So scientists are still trying to understand these intricate relationships between how the microbiome and our health interact. Donna, I get a bottle of kombucha in my weekly vegetable box now to make sure I'm a, eating plants and B, drinking kombucha and making sure I'm walking every day. I've got, a, I've got a steps counter. What do you do and what can other people do to improve their gut microbiome? Well, it sounds like you're doing all of the right things. Um, the other thing I will say about processed food is that the, the amount of food additives in our diets has increased. You know, things like emulsifiers and preservatives, mm. the things that are found in packaged foods have increased over the last few decades compared to previously. So that could also be a factor as well. Are there any other factors that the researchers pointed to that we should know about? You know, something that does get brought up is uh, air pollution, for example, and microplastics. We know that air pollution has lots of ill health effects. It, it's mm. most notably linked to things like lung cancer. But in terms of the relationship between other chemicals entering our body, say through microplastics, um, we're still trying to get to the bottom of that. But researchers think that the timing of exposure to these risk factors might be an important factor. So one particular gastroenterologist I spoke to, he mentioned that, you know, the, the risk for young onset cancer could potentially begin as early in the womb as a result of exposure to, you know, stresses during that antenatal, perinatal period. Right. So pollution or diet or other environmental factors your mother was exposed to while she was pregnant. Is that what that means? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is still a hypothesis. They haven't yet been able to prove this, but he says, they're working on it. Joe, what started going through your mind when you found out? I mean, it's a horrific diagnosis to get at any point in life. I'm not saying that it's harder to be young than it is to be old. It's just different. And I feel that it really pulls you out of a stage of life where you think there are these really distinct barriers between, you know, young and old, sick and well, 
you think you have control over your body, that if you kind of eat right and exercise and look after yourself, so to speak, that you'll be okay. And you all of a sudden realize that those distinctions are quite false and make us feel like we have a level of agency over our bodies that we don't necessarily have, that any of us can be sick and probably all of us will be sick at some point. So I think there was like a big sort of psychological thing to grapple with there. And then there are all the kind of implications of cancer specifically to grapple with, like, A, of course, will I survive? You also grapple with things like, you know, will I lose my hair and how will I physically change during chemotherapy. You start to think about your fertility as well because chemotherapy can render some people unable to have children, which, you know, chemo is really hard at any age, but that's an added awful side effect for people who are still in their childbearing years. So you mentioned your fertility. What kind of decisions did you have to make? So generally when you are going to go through chemotherapy, it's my understanding is most people like me are offered the option if if there's time to do some fertility preservation treatment, which means freezing your sperm or your eggs uh, in case you're not able to conceive naturally afterwards. There's a very short window in order to do that because generally doctors want to start chemotherapy very quickly. You have to decide, do you want to freeze embryos with your partner or do you want to freeze your own eggs? Do you want to do any of that at all? You know, these are the kinds of decisions you often get a fair bit of time to think about. You know, do I want to have children with this person? Do I want to have children at all? What does that mean to me? How much do I want it? All of a sudden, these decisions are thrust upon you and you have to make them very, very quickly. So for women in particular, you know, you can only get through maybe one menstrual cycle in order to try and and harvest those eggs. So that's what I decided to do. Fertility treatment is also incredibly invasive. Anyone who's gone through it knows you are pumped full of hormones. And I have to say, I found that to be almost more difficult than other aspects of the cancer treatment, just because it's so fraught and emotional, confronting not just your own mortality, but the possibility that you won't have children. So I had surgery almost immediately after the diagnosis. And there was then this short window between surgery and chemo in order to do that. So it was physically taxing, um, very emotional thing to have sort of wedged in the middle of everything else. Donna, I guess we've always thought of cancer as being something that happens to older people. Given everything we just talked about, what is the medical system going to do about it? Do they have to look at reducing the age of screening, for example? There are calls to lower the age of screening. So Bowel Cancer Australia have been calling for this for quite a few years now. They ideally want to lower the age of screening to begin at 40 or, you know, at least 45, which would be in line with US recommendations. And if you have a family history, they say regular colonoscopies from 30. So is that likely to happen? This is something that advocates have been pushing really strongly for. There is an argument that financially it does make sense in terms of public health savings, but the potential downside of this is that there is quite a long wait time, depending on where you live in Australia, to get a colonoscopy. So the concern is if we lower the screening rates, perhaps we have more colonoscopies to then get through, which means delays in being able to diagnose anything, which kind of gets rid of that advantage of earlier screening for younger people. And what about awareness? Is there enough awareness out there among younger people and also the medical community that younger people are getting cancer now? The awareness in both spheres 
could improve for sure, particularly with respect to the medical community. Because of this perception that cancer primarily affects older people, it does mean that people are falling through the cracks, even though they have all of the red flag symptoms for cancer. And I guess it speaks to an importance for patients to be able to advocate for themselves. You know, if you're experiencing strange or concerning symptoms and they persist, by all means, go back to your GP, ask them again if you're not being listened to. But patients obviously don't have the medical knowledge of doctors. So it is up to medical bodies to educate their staff to be on the lookout for these symptoms in in younger people because we know that the rates are rising. But scientists are still trying to get their heads around why this is happening. And until we have more research and funding in this space, it might continue to be a mystery. Jo, I wonder, looking back now, if there's anything that you learnt or that you have taken from the experience. I feel like we often want people who go through cancer to deliver us with kind of life lessons because cancer is so sort of nonsensical and awful. I feel like as a culture, we want to make sense of it. We want people to come back as sort of what the writer Anne Boyer has called angels of epiphany who can teach us all how to kind of live better and, you know, seize every day and all this sort of stuff, which, you know, that's lovely if you can. I personally just think cancer is just an absolutely shitful kind of experience that we should romanticise a bit less and fund and treat better. I learned about the value of community, I guess. I felt so well supported by my friends and my colleagues during my experience. I learned about having to sort of accept uncertainty and that's okay and you can get through it. Beyond that, it's pretty hard to say though. I mean, I also feel a little bit of survivor's guilt having been in contact with so many people whose experience is so much worse than mine that I'm sort of wary of acting like I can come back down from the mountain with tablets and tell people what life is like or what cancer is like because in reality, despite how awful my experience was, I'm really one of the luckier ones. I'm just grateful for that. How long is it since your diagnosis, Jo? So it's been two years almost to the day. How are you feeling now? Yeah, look, I'm doing really well. So I finished chemotherapy in April of 2022. On your last day of chemotherapy, they get you to ring this big brass bell to mark the end of your treatment, which, you know, is lovely. And I remember doing it and and being happy to do it, but thinking like, maybe this isn't the end. It's a sort of a bittersweet ending you get in cancer, knowing that you may have recurrence. The type of cancer I had means that you're not declared in remission or not in remission straight away. You have to wait five years of testing to see if it can be detected before you're sort of considered cured, I guess. But I've been cancer-free for, yeah, for over a year now, which is wonderful. And you had some really happy news happen about eight months ago. Yeah. So in early January, I had another day where I was feeling really nauseous, but this time for much happier reasons. I found out my partner and I were expecting a baby And yeah, I'll be finishing up work in a couple of weeks and hopefully giving birth about a month from now back at the same hospital, actually. It's been very surreal going back there for all my kind of checkups and appointments for quite a happy reason, not the miserable reason that was taking me there two years ago. That is a very good story, Jo. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jo. Thanks, Gabs.
That's it for today. Thanks so much to Donna Liu and Joe Tovey. You can find their respective stories and more on the rise of cancer in young people at theguardian.com. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and Miles Herbert. Sound design and mixing by James Milsom. Hannah Parks was the executive producer. Full Story will be back with you tomorrow. Catch you then. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.